If you could characterize food service supply chain in like a couple sentences, how would you do that? Say in general, it's a very relationship oriented industry, more so than perhaps like retail that's maybe more transactional. I mean, obviously, when you're the buyer, you've got the stick, but it's really about long-term relationships and not screwing the supplier down on something that isn't fair. You can come in with an aggressive price and get in there and get your foot in the door, but if it's not sustainable, that's not good for anybody. You know, it's not good for the brand. It's not good for the supplier. But if you have innovation that that the other guys don't, if you know because of your new plant and equipment, you're going to be able to make that product higher quality and, and consistent over time. I mean, that's incredibly important. Welcome, fellow food supply chain enthusiasts, to Farm to Fork, the Innovators. I'm your host, David Maloney, CEO of DatumFS, and I've spent over four decades navigating the twists and turns of the food supply chain. But here's the thing. The journey is far from over, and the future is ripe with possibilities. On this podcast, we're diving deep into the stories and strategies that are reshaping the way we produce, distribute, and serve our food. From the trailblazers who laid the groundwork to the disruptors defining tomorrow, each episode is a journey into the heart of innovation. So buckle up, hit that subscribe button, and let's harvest progress together. This is Farm to Fork, the innovators, where the future of the food supply chain starts with this episode. Our guest innovator today, David Cox, has clocked nearly four decades in the food supply chain with a remarkable journey culminating in his recent retirement as president of RCOP, the purchasing co-op for Arby's restaurant chain. In this episode, we're diving deep into food service supply chain. David shares invaluable insights on the crucial role of relationships in the industry, including best practices on how to cultivate these vital partnerships. We'll then embark on a journey through David's transformative efforts in making Arby's supply chain a customer of choice. Next up, We're shedding light on the transparency factor in the food service supply chain. David will be unpacking his insights on using data and technology to bring about a more transparent and efficient system. For our supplier and distributor listeners, David lays out a roadmap on how not just to enter, but thrive in the competitive arena of restaurant chains. And before we wrap up, we tackle a topic close to our hearts, the rising role of women leadership within the supply chain. David shares his thoughts on mentorship, its pivotal role in advancement, and why diversity is so important. Hi, welcome. Uh, My name is David Maloney, and this is Farm to Fork, the Innovators. And uh, with me today is David Cox. And before we learn a little bit more about David, I kind of want to set the table for you all. David and I were just discussing the first time that we met in person, David had, and his company had been a client, we were sitting in a conference room at his company, and I was walking his team through a, a commodity situation where there was going to be tight protein supplies. And David was pretty quiet throughout the uh, presentation. At the end, with a slight sarcastic undertone, said, well, that's great, because we're about to launch this uh, big... Uh, ad campaign and it's focused on proteins and uh, it's called we have the meats which obviously went on to be an extremely successful ad campaign probably a headache for david and his team from a supply chain standpoint 
But um, welcome, David. Oh, welcome. Yeah, that, that campaign, you know, really helped turn the brand around, for sure. It's still, to this day, they're utilizing it. It's recognizable when it's on the TV. As soon as you hear Vin Rames' voice, you know it's Arby's and, and the We Have the Meats. And little kids love to say it, too. <laughs> yeah, my kids. I think I sent you an email. My kids had something working through their social media a pun on that. Cool. Well, so before we get into you a little bit more, I'm going to have some fun. Like I said, I'm going to throw a date at you. All right, let's see if you remember this date because I think it's one of the most important dates in your lifetime. So the date is November 3rd, and there's a trick to it. November 3rd, 2016. Well, the Cubs won the World Series. Oh, see, that speaks a lot to who this guy is, right? Exactly right. Because the game was on November 2nd, but it didn't end. Yeah, it was almost at the stroke of midnight. Yeah. Just past the stroke of midnight. That's right. So that's why I said there was a trick <laughs> question. So if I remember correctly, you're from the south side of Chicago? I am. I, uh, I grew up in the suburbs of south of Chicago, south side suburbs. And, um, you know, my dad's a Sox fan. Everybody else was a Sox fan, of course. And, you know, I, I think it's, you know, we talked about it in later years, but I'm pretty sure it was just the fact that the Cubs played day baseball. They were on WGN every day. And from whatever, age three on, I would watch the Cubs all the time, you know, race home from school at 3.30 in April and May and catch the last three innings. And yeah, so big Cub fan. I think my first little league team, my dad was the coach and they added, they had two expansion teams and believe it or not, the Cubs and the White Sox weren't taken. And I guess the other team had first pick and they took the Cubs and my dad had to take the White Sox or took the White Sox. I don't know if he had to, <laughs> but um, he came home and, and said I was playing on the White Sox. And I said, no, I'm not. <laughs> I'm quitting. I'm not playing on the White Sox. The end of, the very, of a very quick baseball career, huh? Well, I ended up playing, but yeah. <laughs> That's great. All right. So tell us about yourself, David. Tell us about your career. And I want to dig into your hobbies because your, your better half has a, 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 certainly an interesting career that you've uh, supported. So go ahead. Yeah. You know, grew up in Chicago, went to uh, a mid-major school by the name of Bradley University down in Peoria. and Good basketball. Very good basketball program over the years. I got a business management degree and and um, came out of school and worked in Chicago downtown for um, about six years doing finance. Um, I had worked for a bank as a teller and helped in the loan department and other things in high school and and always good with numbers and such, but still didn't know really what I wanted to do. And so we ended up moving to Louisville, um, finally convinced my wife to move south, and that was at least partially south. And she uh, she ended up taking a job with KFC. She has an industrial engineering degree um, and an MBA. And um, she was working for KFC in the R&D department. And so anyway, fast forward, um, I ended up getting connected with the KFC co-op, which is RSCS these days. And they um, they hired me in the finance area with an understanding and desire that I wanted to move into some other facets of the business, hopefully on the operations side. And so I got into um, 
futures and commodity buying, you know, because of my finance background was my initial forte into, into supply chain and loved it. There was something behind the numbers other than just creating some finance report on the third Thursday of every month <laughs> kind of thing. And that's when I, you know, started um, diving deep into the supply chain area. Cool. And then on your way to sunny Florida from there? Yeah, I've, I've, I had a bunch of stints, uh, short stints early on after that. I had a mentor by the name of Barry Millett who um, took a job at this newly formed co-op down in South Florida uh, called RSI. And they were the new co-op for the Burger King system. And, and Barry said, well, I'm going to want you to come down there and join me. And I said, there's no way I'm moving to Miami. Sorry. And uh, four months later, I was moving to Miami. And so, um, yeah, that was great. I was there a couple of years. I will say that we had uh, one of our sons was born down there, and the other one was about two or three at the time. And, you know, if you're going to live in Miami, you need to enjoy the, the terrain, the beach, the, you know, what Miami has to offer. And we had two tiny little kids. We just, yeah, we just, she didn't enjoy Miami. So, we ended up not staying there very long. I was just there a couple of years and then an opportunity popped up. I wasn't actively looking, but it popped up and I moved to Atlanta, worked for this uh, small, not small, but small company, but large franchisee by the name of RTM, which at the time had 800 Arby's restaurants, but they also owned Mrs. Winter's chicken. And they also had some, they bought some Shoney's while I was there. And so I actually worked with our cop as a franchisee, but the majority of my job was doing supply chain for the Mrs. Winters brand that at the time probably had 100 and maybe 120 restaurants or something. So then I jumped and had a connection with uh, Nelson Marcioli, who was head of QA and some other things down to Burger King. He went over to Burger's Bagels and at the time, Burger's Bagels was opening about 300 restaurants a year, and they were fighting Einstein's for for the introduction of bagels to the industry, and they were going to be the next McDonald's and everything like that. And then I reconnected with Barry and ended up at Darden. And so I was at Darden Restaurants for about eight years, spent some initial time on the seafood side, spent some time in a role that was kind of a strategic supply chain role that worked with the various team members. And then eventually I became a VP of supply chain over all the non-seafood categories as well as uh, distribution. Then um, through another old connection um, back at Arby's, um, they were looking for a new president at RCOP. And, you know, RCOP was kind of this really small nuts and bolts purchasing organization they had a reputation for not treating suppliers very well. They had a reputation for not paying very well. So after a lot of discussions to Sharon Barton that, um, number one, you can't afford me anymore. And number two, here are my concerns. I was on my way to Atlanta to build essentially a new supply chain group because they had 13 people at the side. They had at the time, they had no, no systems, no technology, not the right people um, kind of thing. And so um, I became president there. Um, I was in my early 40s at the time. And um, fast forward almost 20 years later, um, I just retired. So 
Congratulations. Sort of retired. All right. So let's jump into to supply chain, right? And, you know, like the podcast is formed to fork innovators and, you know, probably supply chain is uh, food service supply chain is probably known to, to be a fairly slow innovator. But I, I can tell you, and David, you probably don't know this. When I had uh, American Restaurant Association, you and your team were some of the first people I would call and bounce ideas off of, whether that's a strategic sourcing platform or cost of goods analysis or anything at the tech that we were building. And so David and his team were always very generous with their time and energy to provide that feedback to, just to help themselves, not only help themselves, but to help the industry. So if you could characterize food service supply chain in like a couple sentences, how would you do that? I would say in general, it's a very relationship-oriented industry, more so than perhaps like retail that's maybe more transactional. It is about relationships. It is about, it's that three-legged stool between distributor, supplier, and operator. And it can be a challenge. There can be limited capacity on the distribution world. There can be limited capacity in a certain category in the supplier world. Things like covid can happen. Things like Ameriserve bankruptcy can happen, you know, and so it's during those times where you really lean into the relationships and and they're so critically important. But we've always had a philosophy of being a customer choice and that, you know, leans right into a relationship. You know, I mean, the concept was if we can become and believe me, RCOP was not this when I got here. I, it took us about five or six years to walk the talk and, and make everybody believe it. But if I can be the preferred customer, you know, just take the chicken category and there might be, you know, there might be eight different players you could play with. But if, if you're the guy that they all want to do business with for a variety of different reasons and, you know, you get into an RFP or you get into negotiations you know, because you end up with some of the strongest, you know, the, the target is to end up with the strongest suppliers huh, that you develop those relationships with and, and you want to be the guy they're targeting, right? And so if you end up with the two or three best suppliers in a category, they're probably the most efficient suppliers as well. You're probably going to get extremely favorable costing as a result. And then at that point, you treat them well. And so when, when stuff happens, guess who, who they're going to take care of? Are they going to take care of Arby's or are they going to go down or take care of the, the customer down the street that's a pain in the ass to uh, work with and, you know, oh, and just screw them on the last RFP, right? And, and it's not even just during tough times. It's about quality. It's about consistent product over time. You know, all that folds into the equation. I think... Part of all that is the reason that food service doesn't is kind of behind the times in regards to technology and, you know, in comparison to other industries, for sure. Yeah. And that's interesting when way back, I don't know, it was a decade or so ago when we were talking with you about strategic sourcing and a platform and it seemed to be kind of the, the kind of startups yes. in the industry seemed to be kind of the auctions. Remember those? Yeah. Yeah. The auctions that would come about. Yeah. Right. And and I remember you all, and actually I heard this from Ryan when he was at Aerostream too. Just the relationship was really important and it really made me think. It really surprised me. One. Two, 
it really made me think that the technology needs to drive relationships, right? not end relationships, right? Don't make it transactional. I mean, I, I remember having this, and for those of you who don't know, Ryan is one of David's sons who is also in supply chain. But I remember having a conversation with Ryan at Aerostreams. What's the most important thing to these supply chain professionals? And the same answer you just gave me, relationships. Yeah. So I guess you taught them well, right? Yeah. I don't remember having those kinds of discussions with him, but I guess he... He listened when I didn't think he was listening. Yeah. <laughs> so you said treat the suppliers well, and I, I want to lean into the suppliers a little bit. How do you treat a supplier well, right, in supply chain? I mean, some people out there might be on a supply chain team that don't understand what that means. They may, may be a supplier out there that's not used to be treating well, treated well. So how, what does it mean to treat them well? Well, you have to treat them with respect, and you have to treat them fairly, I mean, obviously, when you're the buyer, you've got the stick, but it's really about long-term relationships and not screwing the supplier down on something that isn't fair. I mean, we would always try to identify when there was an issue that came up and there was, you know, even as something as simple as a, a late load and the distributor had to do hot shots, you know, we would try to figure out what was the root cause and then, you know, if it wasn't clear and it was just kind of one of these day-to-day things, then we, we didn't push back on that cost. If it was clearly the distributor's fault and they didn't order product in on time, then, then the hot shots are your cost. You know, if it was clearly, if it was supplier freight coming into the D.C. and, and they were delayed, then, you know, then we pushed back on the, on the supplier and something like that. But typically, it was just about doing the right thing. And doing the fair thing and not treating them like, you know, just because you've got the, the checkbook, you know, I can, I can beat up on these folks, you know. So is it, it fair to say that price isn't not only not the only factor in how you do business? Oh, absolutely. I mean. But relationship trumps that. Believe me, price is very important and, and we would negotiate and, you know, always looking at new suppliers and categories and you know, and try to make it as competitive as possible. But at the same time, I wouldn't swing 30% of the business for a quarter of a penny when the, the supplier is performing at a very high level from a QA standpoint, from a consistency standpoint, from a relationship standpoint, from an innovation, you know, are they in the, are they in the, uh, you know, they're working with the chefs, you know, from a product development standpoint and all of those kinds of things absolutely factor in to an RFP process. Now, is price the most important? Yeah. But if everything's sort of equal, then you start looking around and you start looking at folks that are excelling in those other areas. Do you approach distribution the same way? We do. We did. I, I, I got to get over the we <laughs> stuff. <laughs> it's only been four months. You know, distribution's a, a tough business to be in. And it is, it is very much relational. You know, when there was a lot of capacity out there five, seven, 10, 14 years ago, it was about that case fee. And unfortunately, we drove, you know, the industry drove costs out of distribution to the point where nobody in their right mind would reinvest in distribution, you know, because the margins were so tight. And, you know, when, you, when you're going through 
when you're going through these, whether it's with a supplier or distributor, you know when it's tight. You know, you know by the tone of the voice of the squeal <laughs> that you you know you've gotten it down. You've known it down pretty tight. And on the distribution side, obviously there's been just a tremendous amount of challenges during COVID. Prior to that, tremendous amount of challenges in, related to you know drivers having enough drivers. And then capacity, you know, capacity worked its way in. And so that's when we and others in the industry kind of had to shift back away from that transactional relationship to more of a regular relationship. Because through COVID and through some of these times, there are a lot of distributors firing customers. And it's one thing, you know, to be out of chicken for three days. It's another thing to not have a delivery into a store for three days. You know, I mean, you're shutting the store down. You can still sell roast beef sandwiches if you're out of chicken, but but if the distribution truck doesn't show up for a week, you're in trouble. It is a relationship. I, I just have gotten to the point where RFPs shouldn't be conducted anymore. It should be a true partnership. It should be open book, full visibility, cost plus. Uh, let's look at your expenses. You know, if our transactions are going down and the cases are going down, you know, how's that impact the business and do we need to pay more for distribution or vice versa? If they go up, we pay less, right? And it's such a disruption when you change distributors that if you can get to a five or seven year agreement with a distributor with the appropriate escalators, it takes work to figure that out. But just knowing that you don't have to change distributors for seven years, you know, you can go focus on other things would be huge. If you don't mind, I'd like to lean into that a little bit. And I do have a question on kind of innovation for you here in a little bit. But I, I, The trend I've seen is over the last five years or so is that more transparency, more data collaboration, more cost collaboration, not just with distributors and brands, but also the suppliers. And that seems to be the movement, right, which I think is a very healthy movement for the industry. Do you see that continuing and, and how can potentially data or technology help foster that? I think it's pretty clear that data and technology should not take the relationship out of the business, but how can it foster those relationships, right? No, I think if, if you were able to get to a place with some kind of structured cost plus scenario with a distributor going through that process absolutely would strengthen a relationship, right? And you've got to get to a place where everybody can trust the data and believe in the data. You know, in the distribution world, there's a lot of self-reporting metrics, some of it accurate, some of it not so much, you know? And so you've, you've got to, you know, first off, you've got to ensure all the data is correct and that the costs are true. And the cost model is so different today than it was 18 months ago even between the labor rates that they've had to pay for drivers and warehousemen and fuel and all the things that cost distributors money, significant money. But at the same time, you know, the operator as a chain, you have to be performing well and having a great relationship with the distributor. You know, one of the things I always tell distributors to do, and it's been very difficult to do the last seven or or last three years, 
And that is keep your drivers consistent, you know, because once that general manager establishes a relationship with the driver and, you know, I mean, they've got a good relationship and you know what, Charlie hit a traffic jam and he's going to be late by an hour and a half and he calls the store or lets the store know. Guy's like, oh, don't worry about it, Charlie. We'll unload when you get here. You know, if it's not Charlie and it's a different driver every week and they're an hour and a half late every other time, now the manager's not so pleasant, <laughs> you know. So that's key. You know, the visibility piece, we have got, you know, at some point we've got to get to the point, purely from an efficiency standpoint, of tying everything from farm to, I don't want to say farm to fork, but farm to POS systems. And, you know, with recipes and everything else. So, I mean, retail's had that for 25 years. I mean, <laughs> come on, we need to catch up. So that manager spends a lot of time. If, if you're getting two-day-a-week deliveries, he or she is spending a lot of time taking inventory, looking at the recommended order, you know, that is just, you know, looks at what you ordered the last X number of weeks or whatever, trying to take into account what LTL, LTOs there are, t- trying to take into account whatever holidays are coming up or, or whatever the case might be. And, um, you know, and placing an order and then receiving an order it takes a lot of time. You know, if you can get to the point where somebody goes in and buys a roast beef sandwich and curly fries and a drink and you know you need hundreds of a case of <laughs> curly fries to replenish that – you know, it really needs to be a push thing and just take that out of the manager's hands. You know, when when the manager is back in the office placing orders and analyzing inventory and doing all that just means they're not taking care of the guests up front, you know. And if you can get the systems and the data correct, the manager might have to give it a once over once they get comfortable with everything. But theoretically, it should work very well. The distributor comes in and places in the right spot and leaves, you know, and that, you know, I, I say it like, you know, it's so simple. It's, it's not going to be simple to get there, but that's something that the industry has to strive for. And, you know, GS1 and we're finally getting to some industry standards that distributors used to be. There were, you know, there were four different barcodes on on the case, you know, when it came from a distributor, you know, the DC center might have its own barcode, the supplier might have its own, the, we just have not as an industry come together very well. I mean, I, I believe I'm almost certain I went to the first GS1 meeting, industry meeting when I was still at Darden and that was whatever, 19 years ago, 20 years ago, you know, and here we are. I mean, Arby's is very GS1 compliant. I don't know. We're very high 90% tile. And there's a lot of the other big brands that are too, but there's still so much of the industry that doesn't have GS1. And so when you got a distributor that's bringing in seven different customers into a DC and four of them have GS1 and three don't, they can't switch over to it, right? It has to be an industry standard. So, amen. I'm with you 100%. I agree with you that data will be huge to bring that the industry forward in the coming decades. And notice I say decades, right? Not years. But I, I still think that the believe, I think that the industry is an art 
right? I mean, in the restaurant business, you have business people and you have artists, right? And the business is an art and it's built on those relationships, et cetera. So that data technology still has to foster those relationships. So I want to lean into those relationships here. One, one or two more questions here. I'm going to guess it's really hard for an unknown new supplier or unknown new distributor to kind of break in, right? So what advice would you have for them? Yeah, I think um, you got to figure, I mean, kind of the obvious, you got to figure out where you can bring value that the current suppliers aren't bringing. You know, we absolutely had great strategic relationships with large suppliers and everything. But part of our strategy was always there's somebody else out there that's hungry that maybe has figured out how to be more efficient, you know, want to get their foot in the door, all those things. And then we would bring them in during an RFP process, you know, make sure they could make the product and they could handle 20% of the Arby's volume or whatever. And then, you know, typically they were less expensive than some of the big guys. And we would use that as leverage, you know, against the other participants in the, in the RFP. But I would say just from a RCOP perspective, you know, it was more than price. You know, you, you can come in with an aggressive price and get in there and get your foot in the door. But if it's not sustainable, that's not good for anybody. You know, it's not good for the brand. It's not good for the supplier. But if you are, if you have innovation that, that the other guys don't, if you know because of your new plant and equipment, you're going to be able to make that product higher quality and, and consistent over time. I mean, that's incredibly important. And then, you know, do you, do you have creativity on the product development side? You know, what can you bring to the product development team with ideas and, and thoughts? You know, there's so many suppliers out there with, with corporate chefs that are working with all the brands to, to help, you know, and there's, there's some product development folks that are receptive to help. And there's others that, you know, if it wasn't invented here, it's not a good idea. I don't remember the exact question anyway, but I've been kind of talking. How do you break in? How do these new suppliers? But, I, but what I heard from you is that you've got, to, you've got to provide some value and it's got to be more than price, but it sounds like price obviously is very important. Price will get people's attention. Yeah, for sure. Now it's, it's not easy, but then, you know, it, it is, you know, it is about building relationships and trying to get in there and understand who the decision makers are and, what have you. You mentioned Barry Moulet. So I remember Barry back when I started American Restaurant Association back in the mid 90s, calling on uh, Barry wherever he was, right? Yeah. Barry has, uh, you mentioned him as a mentor. I mean, a mentorship, or you and I are sports guys, like the coaching tree, right? Barry has quite a bit of proteges out there. Am I wrong? Oh, yeah. I mean, Part of it is, you know, when you get to be our age, you've worked with a lot of people and they're still in the industry and you're not, you know, so, but absolutely, there's so many people. I just, you know, I was at the NRA supply chain conference last week and uh, market vision last week. And I was just looking around the room and I mean, I'm talking 20, 30 people that had worked, you know, at RCOP over the years, you know, or, or still do. And, um, you know, so for me, it was all, all old home week and it was great to see everybody and all of that. But there are so many people that are in significant roles, either 
you know, within their company, or if you take, for example, the NRA uh, supply chain expert exchange, I was chair for a couple of years way back when, when we first kicked it off. But, you know, the current chair is Christy Keenery. Tropical Smoothie. And she's head of supply chain at, at Tropical Smoothie. And, you know, I brought Christy into the industry. She didn't have any supply chain background way back then, you know, and then uh, Desi is the co is the uh, co-chair now, or not co-chair, the uh, vice chair. And she's at Panera and she's a VP and she was at RCOP for a time. And, and let me get into that a little bit. When we got to RCOP, there were a million things we had to do and change and build. And then fast forward, maybe seven, eight years later, I had done everything I knew how to do. My thought process and what I had done at Darden and other places, we had now done at RCOP, right? And so we have a very, you know, continual improvement culture. So that was when I decided I needed to get involved in the industry in some way, shape or form and start making connections with peers in the industry and see what they're doing. Because, you know, the one thing supply chain folks always do is share. They share, as long as we're not talking pricing or marketing calendars, we can share everything, you know? And so, and it was about that time, David Parsley and a couple of others of us got together and, and started up the NRA uh, supply chain group again. It, it, it was around when I was, you know, when I was a junior woodchuck and, and I used to go to it and I learned so much from the people that, you know, were in higher, you know, at bigger brands or, or higher roles. And it was great. And then the, the thing kind of deteriorated and over the years. And so when we brought it back, it was great. And, you know, as much time as you put into something like that, you know, from an industry standpoint, which is a great thing to do, there was a tremendous amount of value that came back, you know, because, you know, even to this day, you know, I pretty much know every head of procurement in most of the big chains, you know, and, and a lot of that is a result of the NRA group because the board is comprised of the Charlie Luznows and the John Enrights and, and folks like that over the years. And, you know, and so if we're having a problem in a certain area, you know, we all have the same kind of problems. They're different based on what the menu mix is and what you're buying and everything. But, at the same time, the problems are always very similar. And so if I had an issue on something and we were stumped and we didn't know how to, how to you know, long-term fix it, you know, I could pick up the phone and call Charlie or pick up the phone and call whoever. And, and um, that value was huge. And it was, you know, they might, you might go to the conference and see that somebody's doing X and you're, you're like, well, we can't really do that at Arby's because of whatever. But you might take a nugget of that and use it in another category or whatever the case. And so it's been extremely valuable to me for a variety of reasons. And, and what's great is, you know, people like Christy and, and Desi, they see the value in it too. And there's putting a lot of time into it in the middle of two very busy careers. It struck me at least this year, by the way, Market Vision and the NRA Supply Chain Conferences, for those who don't never attended it's correct me if i'm wrong david by far the best conference for the this niche within the industry mm-hmm. but it, it struck me this year that there seemed to be a lot more female kind of leading the charge in these conferences and not only that 
it's had me thinking, wow, there, there are a lot more women who are leading supply chain organizations at these restaurants now that I don't think we saw when you and I first got into it, which is, as a father that has three daughters, very pleased to see. Yeah, the demographic, I mean, you know, supply chain, <laughs> 15 years ago, I would go to Market Vision or, or the NRA group, and it was, it was at least 80% men, probably 90 and I actually joked with Ryan at, at the at the conference because we were uh, there was breakouts and I was like, fifteen years ago there weren't <laughs> yeah. any women here. <laughs> there were, there really wasn't, you know, and and which is just crazy. It was just one of those. Well, I don't know. I guess it was just a perception, you know. Well, a woman doesn't know how to negotiate. Well, yeah, they do. <laughs> and um, and what's great too is. For example, for the NRA conference this year, we had 150 operators there, you know, and probably another 70 or 80 suppliers. I think we were pushing 300. And out of the 150 operators, 50 were first-time attendees of the conference. And I'm looking across the room, you know, at one point in time, I knew 80% of the people in the room. I don't know that I know 20% of the people in the room anymore, you know? And so, and it's a young group. I mean, it is, I think COVID had a hand in that. There's a lot of folks that supply chain was not a fun place to be during COVID. (laughs) And uh, I think the industry lost a lot of folks. They're like, I'm out. This is ridiculous. But at the same time, you know, through technology, through so many you know, schools that have supply chain majors now. I mean, I think there was maybe one or two schools when I was in college that had supply chain majors. I didn't even know the word supply chain. So most of the folks of my generation that got ended up in the supply chain, there's a lot of finance folks because it kind of makes sense, you know. But you didn't go off to college go saying, I'm going to be a supply chain major. I'm going to, I'm going to go into supply chain. <laughs> it's just, you know, and today that's happening through the Amazons and the Walmarts. And if anybody in this country hasn't heard the word supply chain in the last three years, I'd be amazed. But uh, yeah, so it is a very, very different industry. And it's great because these are folks that have grown up with data and instantaneous feedback. You know, they got to have instantaneous feedback and they're going to be the ones pushing for this farm to POS system not us dinosaurs, you know, I'm still trying to figure out how to manage millennials, but yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy. Yeah. Crazy. Good. Crazy. Good. Yeah. Crazy. Good. That's right. So as you mentioned, you said in the beginning, sort of retired as we end, you know, so you tell us what you're doing now and how do people get in touch with you, et cetera. Yeah. I, um, my new work email is cox.david.d at iCloud.com. And you can connect with me through LinkedIn. I have found um, LinkedIn to be very valuable in my post-working days um, to stay connected with people. So you should, be able to, you should be able to search and find me there pretty quick. I've started an advising company, quote unquote. It's a very innovative name. It's called Cox Supply Chain Management Advisors. And mostly what I'm finding is, and, and I'm doing some work with John Inride as well, but... John's from Wendy's QSCC. 
retired from QSCC, another another legend in the industry. Yeah, absolutely. And John and I used to work together years and years and years ago at KFC, and we've always stayed connected. But I don't want to consult. Consult could turn into a 70-hour work week. <laughs> and, um, you know, I, I do want to partially retire and do the travel and all that kind of stuff. But also, I absolutely want to stay connected to the industry. And so I have already been able to join a couple advisory boards, both kind of on the supplier side. One's more of a consultant type arrangement. But um, what I've been amazed in my limited time and having a couple of board meetings and such is because one of the companies is pretty large in retail and manufacturing and and what have you, and they want to get into the food service space. And what I've been surprised about is, you know, you just kind of start talking about some basic blocking and tackling within food service supply chain. And they're like, wait, what? You know, and they're, they're taking notes. And I'm like, I mean, that's just common sense, it's, you know, kind of stuff. And so to us, yeah, it isn't to them because they've never been exposed to it, you know, but you, I, you forget that. So yeah, it's it's been fun. I was in Dallas until late last night, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, doing a couple of things, perhaps uh, working with somebody else new, and uh, it's been a blast. You know, last week I was in Orlando all week at the two conferences, so it almost these last two weeks almost feels like I'm still working, but um, <laughs> without all the day to day headaches of obsolete inventory and running out of product and such. Well, for those of you who may be listening, who uh, may be looking for some help in food service supply chain, you know how to get a hold of David. I can attest that he is a, um, I don't want to say a legend in the industry. I mean, you are, but you're too young to, you know, but you are a, uh, always been an innovator, always willing to listen, always willing to explore things. And most importantly, as you probably heard throughout this podcast, he treats people very well. And he's got two Two very uh, nice young men, sons, to attest to that. So, David, it's it's been a pleasure, and uh, we'll talk soon. And that brings us to the end of another insightful journey through the fields of innovation on Farm to Fork, the innovators. It's an honor to have you listen. If you found today's episode as fascinating as we did, don't forget to share it with a friend, write a review, and hit that subscribe button so you never miss another episode. Farm to Fork is not just a podcast. It's a community of forward thinkers and change makers. Your thoughts and ideas matter to us. Reach out on social media or through our website, datamfs.com, and be a part of the ongoing conversation. As we wrap up today, remember, the future of the food supply chain is in our hands. Stay curious, stay innovative, and let's continue growing together. Until next time, this is David Maloney signing off from Farm to Fork, the innovators. Thank you for being a part of this community. See you in the next episode.